host, Johanna Rubby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS uh, podcast episode. We are uh, speaking today with Dr. Baha Moshari. She is professor of medicine at Atrium Health and the director of motility at Atrium Health Gastro and Hepatology Division. And um, Dr. Moshari has been in uh, a lot of conversations and a lot of journal articles lately. Not only is she an expert in the management of IBS, but she's also an expert in the management of gastroduodenal disorders and esophageal disorders. And today we're talking to her about management of functional dyspepsia and also about gastroparesis. So as many of you have written and talked to me about in recent weeks, there has been a lot of information coming out in many of the gastroenterology journals about updates to clinical guidelines and management and even um, new information around maybe that functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis are interrelated. Maybe they aren't two separate diagnoses. And so there's a lot of noise happening in this area. And Dr. Moshari is one of the best to help us sort through the noise. So welcome today, Dr. Moshari. I'm so pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Rome Foundation and then Joanna for setting this up. I'm honored to be hopefully um, teaching you a few pointers today on differences or similarities between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. Yeah. Well, let's jump right in because there's a lot to talk about. And honestly, it is um, a little bit overwhelming and confusing. And, you know, as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm getting a lot of emails from patients who are asking, do I, do I still have a diagnosis of gastroparesis or do I really have functional dyspepsia after reading these journal manuscripts? I'm not sure. And should my treatment and my management be changing? You know, what's really going on? It, it's a little bit confusing for patients. And I think maybe also somewhat confusing for clinicians when all of these things are changing as well. So I guess let's just start with, you know, what, well, let me back up a little bit. The distinguishing factor between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis used to be delayed gastric emptying. So um, some of these guidelines are, are, getting away from that, but can you just start off with giving us the ideology of functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis so that we can just start there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think as things have evolved, right, we have started to realize that where we used to think gastroparesis was only a motor disorder, so a pure motility disorder, right? right. We're starting to realize that patients with gastroparesis also have sensory issues very similar to patients who have functional dyspepsia. And then whereas functional dyspeptic patients were thought to not have delayed gastric emptying, 
or so, symptoms similar to gastroparesis, we're realizing that that's a sensory and also a motor disorder because some of the patients can have delayed emptying as well, like up to a third, and some of them can have rapid gastric emptying. So mm -hmm. really the designations aren't that clear cut and they are more part of the same phenomenon, similar to, for example, a chronic idiopathic constipation and irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, where you have these overlaps and then right. you have these patients that are extremes of one or the other, right? Mm -hmm. So um, definitely within the patient population, some patients are a spectrum of disease. So within the same patient, they can have a relapse of gastroparesis symptoms, but then be more similar to a functional dyspeptics. And then also in the old days, we used to say pain is not a manifestation of gastroparesis. And now we're realizing, oh, 89 to like 90% um, or 85 to 90% of patients based on Dr. Parkman's paper and others actually have pain as a main manifestation. Wow. So it's not just functional dyspepsic patients that have this, you know, epigastric pain syndrome and postprandial um, distress syndrome. It's right. also the gastropedics that would meet the Rome 4 criteria for functional dyspepsia. So there's those divisions based on what we thought were just symptoms um, specific to one or the other may not necessarily be um, that clear cut. Um, but there are certain risk factors that are, you know, more with one than the other. For example, right. the diabetic patients, I mean, functional dyspepsia is seen in 15 to 30% of patients based on better, the best studies worldwide. It's about seven to 9% of the general population. So it's common, very similar to IBS, right? Mm -hmm. But the slow transit constipation, similar to IBS is only in 2% of patients, right? So it's not every patient that has a motility disorder. And that's the same as gastroparesis. Four out of 100,000, for example, would have gastroparesis, although we all think we see it a lot more often now with the increase in diabetes and the COVID situation now and other viruses that have come along, mm -hmm. um, you know, that are causes. So for mm -hmm. gastroparesis, you know, the top three causes are probably in diabetics, um, idiopathics being number one, but that's just idiopathic. So that means maybe post-viral, maybe some other infection. Um, and then the post-surgical patients would be like number three you know, post-surgery, whether they had gallbladder surgery because they had gallstones or, you know, a nissen fundification was done. Um, some of those get exactly the same symptoms as gastroparesis, but they actually have rapid emptying, for example, but they have very similar symptoms of what we see in gastroparesis. But in functional dyspepsia, the risk factors can be others. So having a history of H. pylori infection that's shown to be eradicated, in, especially in Asian countries, in Latin mm -hmm. world, you know, H. pylori that's treated and eradicated can still cause functional dyspeptic symptoms for many years afterwards, right? Um, right? Even once eradicated. And then smoking, you know, has been shown on some meta-analyses to be a risk factor, but anxiety specifically, a history of anxiety is definitely one of the um, psychological factors that's seen um, in patients. Uh, childhood trauma, similar to IBS, can be seen in many of our FD patients or any like trauma, you know, whether it's family death or right, some situation, right, that could have happened that's anxiety provoking. And then there's definitely a gut brain disturbance as described well by Rome Foundation, right? So just similar to the sister, I call the sister, the IBS of functional dyspepsia. Right. And then most recently, you know, with, with all this data about food insensitivities, food insecure, like um, food intolerances, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing that there are these groups of patients that will develop inflammation in the small intestine, um, mm -hmm. eosinophilia most often. We don't mm -hmm. actually know the cause of that. It could be either gastric eosinophilia or duodenal eosinophilia. 
whether that's related to food sensitivity or not, or gluten or not, um, or FODMAPs or not, like we actually don't know. There is a higher population of patients who have bacterial overgrowth that have functional dyspeptic symptoms too, and vice versa. So there's that group that we still need to sort out, like, are they the same thing? Um, Are they part of the same team or not? But those are the differences between functional dyspepsia, you know, and gastroparesis, the the etiologies perhaps. Perfect. That's really interesting. Okay. So let's dig into some of the journal manuscripts that um, are kind of being published and have been since uh, I think the first one was back in May of this year. Um, which was you and Dr. Tally, actually, Dr. Nick Tally, um, former board member of the Rome Foundation. And you you published on both of the conditions um, as a review of the European consensus on functional dyspepsia. So um, the, the European consensus agreed that delayed gastric emptying is a definite pathophysiologic mechanism in functional dyspepsia, but recommended for performance of any diagnostic testing to evaluate for impaired gastric emptying were not endorsed. And you and Dr. Talley agreed with that recommendation. Um, And you wrote that it was in line with both the Asian and the North American clinical practice guidelines, which advocate for these tests to be reserved only for a subset of patients with functional dyspepsia and specifically for those with symptoms of severe weight loss and vomiting. So my question is, why reserve the the gastric emptying testing for just that patient phenotype? And then more broadly, is there still reason or rationale for gastric emptying testing at all? Yes. So I think that's a great question. And I think if I had answered this question probably 10 years ago, I would have said, what? (laughs) Like, I have to do gastric emptying study. What are they talking about? There's just- It was so common. Yes. I was like, this is so old school. Of course I'm doing it. I would do small bombinometry. I'm going to do gastric emptying study, right? But I think as we're experiencing many of these patients, we see that there is a spectrum that the degree of delayed gastric emptying doesn't have any correlation with how they're going to respond to therapy necessarily in most cases- um, and the severity of their delay, right? So the most severe symptom patients aren't the ones that are severely delayed and vice versa. So it really doesn't have any outcome um, changes that we can make, you know, based on finding that they're severely delayed. However, I will say, yes, the recommendations are correct that this should be reserved for the patients who are really vomiting because those are that's the patient profile that most likely does have gastroparesis symptoms because that's mm-hmm. the patient profile that would probably benefit from prokinetics. Um, right. as a therapy. Also for functional dyspepsia, prokinetics were not actually recommended and endorsed by ESNM because they also didn't recommend gastric emptying scintigraphy be done. The mm. second problem is that scintigraphy in the United States is for whatever reason, even though the standard protocols have been set up in 2008, right? A long time ago, many facilities, whether it's economic reasons or lack of knowledge or familiarity with the test are not performing them the standard method. So depending where the studies are coming out of, if the studies come out of Mayo, of course, they're going to be done standardized with the four-hour measures and all these things mm-hmm. are going to be conformed to, their blood sugar is going to be checked, they're going to get the diet plan, whatever they're supposed to be on, right? right. But if it's done in outlying places, like where I work, for example, in you know in the mountains, <laughs> and they get a gastric emptying study, they're going to give them like goat milk, I don't know, but they give them <laughs> something else that isn't really the standard method, right? Right. And, and they come in with these tests and then I can't interpret them, right? Because there's no 
it's not standardized. No I don't know if the patient, yeah. yeah, ate yeah. the meal, right? A lot of times they'll like vomit the meal and they'll tell us, oh yeah, I vomited the whole thing, but it was read as normal. Well, it's like, yeah, it's normal because you vomited the whole meal, right? Right, so, right. So we see so many of those scenarios as well that I think because functional dyspepsia is so much more common than gastroparesis would be, that it really, in a regular GI practice, in a general GI practice, there's no reason to do these. Now, I will say that probably all of us who say don't do them probably do them in our practices because we have a very tertiary motility practice, right? So they come to me, they want evaluation. I may have to order a prokinetic to see if it'll help their symptoms. So of course, I want to know as that motility specialist, okay, what's the degree of their delay? Am I working more with like a severe delay patients where I'm going to push for these prokinetics that are not FDA approved, or am I going to fight, you know, just to treat them for functional dyspepsia instead? Right. I think, you know, I think the, the recommendations also need to specify more and more as we evolve, whether the studies are from a community setting or from a tertiary care practice. I think this is what I've now realized moving here to Atrium Health and not necessarily being in a tertiary care setting. Um, that that's the difference, right? In a tertiary care setting, you see the sickest of the populations who are vomiting constantly, the worst gastroparesis, right? They have bezoars in their stomach every time you're trying to change their diet. So I think for the most, for most patients as a guideline, yes, there's no need to do a gastric empty scintigraphy because it doesn't help you manage them any different, any different. Right. Okay. All right. So the other paper that we wanted to um, talk to you about was the one that was published by Jay Pazrika and team um, in coordination with the gastroparesis consortium, where they looked at adult patients with chronic upper gastrointestinal symptoms, and they followed them for 48 weeks in a multi-center registry study. And patients were classified as having gastroparesis if gastric emptying was delayed. And if not, then they were labeled as having functional dyspepsia, provided they met Rome criteria. So, so I guess the question then would be, is the, if the delayed gastric emptying is no testing is no longer a standard diagnostic, you're looking at the most prevalent symptoms would then the most prevalent symptom to distinguish between functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis be the vomiting symptom? So nausea can also be a part of functional dyspepsia with the epigastric pain and burning, but is the vomiting kind of that key symptom that makes you think maybe this is not functional dyspepsia? Yes, I think um, I definitely agree with that. I think vomiting is also the symptom that most likely the prokinetics will help the most. You know, um, right now there are divisions of prokinetics. So there's pure prokinetics. Those are things like, um, for example, procalipride, mestinon, um, which is phytostigmine and cholinergic drug. You know, things like macrolides, we use erythromycin, azithromycin. Of course, none of these are FDA approved. But then there's right. these others that have the more dopamine antagonists like um, metocopramide and domperidone, which have anti-emetic properties, but they also have prokinetic properties. So we would use those drugs for both settings because they also treat the nausea, right? But for right. maybe a vomiting patient, we would have to use the prokinetics to help kind of empty the stomach from this reservoir of food that's undigested. Mm-hmm. And then the weight loss. I think the weight loss, but although right. we've all seen patients with functional dyspepsia that lose weight, um, you know, as a result of having these symptoms, but probably weight loss is more of a um, alarm sign for us, right? So we want to make sure there's no malignancy, make sure... Everybody right. with functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis should be scoped because you right. definitely want to make sure 
whether it's a high prevalent population or not, there's no gastric outlet obstruction. You want to make sure there's not H. pylori off of PPI for 14 days so you can document if there's H. pylori or not. So I, I think vomiting is probably the symptom that they've identified in the gastroparesis consortium to be the most prominent that and worrisome. Now, in that gastroparesis consortium, there's also patients that had gastroparesis at the beginning who no longer have gastroparesis, right? So right. Done, they're more functional dyspepsia now. So they have some symptoms, right. right? They're living with those symptoms. There's also patients that are on opioids. There's also patients that are on can't, um, you know, marijuana use because yeah. Yeah, they report right. on what are the risk factors that are the worst. And usually opioids, you know, marijuana use are the worst. And of course, when we see them in clinic, we tell them you have to come off the opioids because they can cause these symptoms. And same with delayed emptying that's been shown with marijuana use. So right. I, and cyclic vomiting. Then there's this whole cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, right? That many patients right. have. So I think those kind of, conf, you know, they're, they're in that same soup of patients yeah. that have yeah. these nausea vomiting syndromes. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, Dr. Patricia's findings are suggestive that maybe gastric emptying studies aren't helpful. Now, that mm -hmm. being said, Dr. Camilleri did a great study looking at, you know, patients that, um, a large group of patients that had syndigraphy, and he proved that when it was done correctly, you know, it was GBT and gastric scintigraphy, to be honest, because they had patients that also had the breath test. But okay. when it was done correctly, the patients, um, they were able to subsegment patients who were gastropretic versus functional aspectics. Okay. But, you know, their conclusions were, you have to do the test correctly. And that that's probably mm -hmm. true. Um, right. right? Um, but, but I think, yeah, that's the, that's the difference. So, so a quick question then, you know, we've talked a lot about within Rome, um, there's been a lot of discussion about how do you communicate with a patient about um, testing that's not warranted for their symptom um, presentation, right? And I think, you know, early on in IBS or any bowel condition, it was an automatic patient was going to expect to have a colonoscopy if they had not had one, possibly an endoscopy, a whole workup of testing, um, presenting with symptoms that were probably very clearly IBS and didn't necessarily require that. And now we know better. And now we're not rec making the recommendation for those tests right off the bat. We're looking at meeting criteria and management. So would the same be true um, in some of the management of functional dyspepsia um, that gastric emptying testing used to be a standard diagnostic workup for patients presenting with this. And now we are seeing that it's not necessarily necessary for every patient presenting with these symptoms. And it's up to the clinician to use judgment on what's going to be best in terms of making that, that diagnosis. Absolutely. I think we need those alarm symptoms defined, right? Mm -hmm. So vomiting, right. weight loss as the alarm symptom of functional dyspepsia. And then those are the patients that a clinician could do gastric emptying scintigraphy or wireless motility capsule or GBT to kind of help them differentiate who may get better from Proconex. But we haven't proved that, right? We haven't proved that if we differentiate those patients and we put them on Proconex, we can change outcomes, right? So, I mean, even functional peptic patients can get better by Proconex. And mm -hmm. we only have one anyway that's FDA approved, which is metoclopramide, right? right. So, so I think... In the future, I'm hoping we'll find subsegments of society that do need the gastric emptying scintigraphy, and then those are the people that get it. For example, you know, in my patient practice, I see I have a cystic fibrosis only clinic that mm -hmm. I do on the afternoons with pulmonary medicine. So, 
cystic fibrosis patients have delayed small bowel emptying and they did 38% of them on average based on meta-analyses have gastroparesis. So that's a patient population that I'm like, okay, they're prone to getting gastroparesis or maybe scleroderma or lupus or Parkinson's, right? So those other buzzwords should kind of alert us to do that maybe in that patient setting, especially if they're losing weight, right? But in everybody else, that's probably like everybody else, right? In the patient that's just has a lot of anxiety, psychosocial factors or not, right? Mm -hmm. But has really the pure functional specific symptoms, not vomiting, not losing weight. I think we should reserve those tests and not cause a huge expense to society because those scintigraphies are almost $3,000. They're not cheap. Um, And everything else is expensive too. So it's not a, um, it's definitely not a necessary test. It's akin to a colonoscopy without the sedation, right? So not everybody yeah. needs it. But I think we were screaming that people should have it for so long. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was going on, it's like, do scintigraphy. You need scintigraphy, right? And right. so we said that for so long that now that we're telling them not to do it, now everybody kind of wants to do it because we're telling them not to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind, it's, of, uh, it's kind of like telling a child no, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah. so you have a great uh, infograph. I'm going to just share that. And maybe you could talk through it for those of us who are watching the video of this that um, you created with the um, publication with Dr. Tally. Um, do you want to walk us through? Sure. Image? Yeah. Yeah. So we we had to give the global perspective on functional dyspepsia. The European um, consensus was Israel. And then 22 European countries um, that came up with like the consensus for what should happen with patients who have functional dyspeptic symptoms. Now, also just to preface this by saying that a lot of the treatments for functional dyspepsia and a lot of the trials were done before Rome 4 came out. So before this right. designation of epigastric pain syndrome and postprandial distress syndrome came out and the overlap, you know, many of the trials didn't really differentiate them. And some of them even call it dyspepsia when H. pylori wasn't necessarily ruled out. And so some of the meta-analyses aren't, they're biased, they're not perfect, they're a little bit heterogeneous, right? So, okay. so it's not a perfect science, but, but as far as what we had available and the studies that may or may not have used form Rome 4, we made the conclusions that the definite risks are female gender, right? So it's like 70% are female. And then gut-brain disturbance, for sure is inherent in many functional dyspeptic patients based on Barostat studies and gastric accommodation testing and many others. And then anxiety, not depression, was actually a risk factor. So that was surprising, right? So after yeah. I always thought depression, similar to IBS, I thought would be, right. it's actually not. It's actually anxiety. Hmm. H. pylori um, patients also have increased anxiety, but also H. pylori is different. There's different H. pylories, right, in different populations around the world. And right. some have the CAG mutation with cancer risk and some not. And so the age group at where EGD was recommended, for example, with the European, they gave a range of 40 to 60 years. In the United States, it was like, you know, 50s. And then some countries like in um, Asia, for example, they were going to decrease theirs to 35 because in Asia, gastric cancer is such a high risk, uh, much higher than here. So, so yeah, so H. pylori is definitely a risk factor by itself, even eradication of H. pylori those patients can have functional dyspeptic symptoms, especially early onset H. pylori. Um, that is a bigger risk factor. And then this duodeno eosinophilia, which is Dr. Talley's baby with increased eosinophilia and in the um, duodenum. And then interestingly, you know, based on their studies, 
the patients that have duodenal eosinophilia also have increased anxiety, right? So mm-hmm. what is it about that that's causing increased anxiety? There's testing where they're looking by aspirates for bacterial overgrowth syndrome, and they found that 30% of those patients actually, um, based on the meta-analyses, do have. It's actually three times more common was the odds ratio, about 2.8. Three times more common um, in functional aspeptics to have SIBO than others. But of course, we're not recommending breath tests either in functional right. aspeptics right now. Um, right. And then the diagnoses, force choice, obviously, if future studies can all use RUN4, it is preferable, right? Because we'll be able to figure out which drugs are better for epigastric pain syndrome, which are better for postprandial distress syndrome, and will syntigraphy even matter, right? Mm-hmm. And then treating and testing H. pylori, obviously, PPI response was very important. So people who respond to PPIs are probably the functional dyspeptics. Um, There was a lot of discussion on heartburn itself, not being part of the Rome definition for functional dyspepsia, but some of the consensus, like the ACG consensus and the um, Canadian one, used heartburn as a symptom in in those patients that were recruited for the PPI studies, right? So obviously that could disturb, (laughs) right, the findings. And so, and then do not do pH testing and impedance pH was not recommended to look for reflux in the patient setting because you're going to treat them with PPIs anyway. And sure. reflux reflux overlaps with functional aspepsia, but it's a different mm-hmm. thing. And then gastric emptying evaluation was not recommended by any of the societies. Um, and then the treatments that were recommended, you know, for PPIs, the number needed to treat is six. And then again, um, for the Asians, it was not on the Asian consensus, which is interesting. Um, you know, like in some of them, they said like spicy foods, like the Indian consensus said, avoid spicy foods. That was like one of the recommendations, right? That makes sense. Right. But yeah. that basically destroys their whole meal um, yeah. forever. And then, and then like the dose of PPI. So the questions are, well, okay, so I'm supposed to take a PPI, but what dose of PPI do they do I take? And they're not all as potent. And some of right. them, you know, maybe absorbed differently in different populations. And then the um, the part that bothered Nick Telly a lot, I'm sure we bothered um, Dr. Josman was that tricyclics were not um, agreed on. So only, you know, on the Delphi consensus, 80% have to agree for, um, you know, for something to be the consensus to, to right. be an agreement, right? right so right. tricyclics were questionable, but then they were recommended more often than prokinetics. But others, okay. like the Asian consensus, did recommend tricyclics. Um, you know, and then so prokinetics were also not endorsed by the European um, society. And then everyone agreed we need a multidisciplinary team. Nobody questioned that, that yes. we need a group of. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. We need Definitely. psychologists. We need dietitians. I yeah. mean, it seems like it's pretty obvious we need those people. But but they all said, yeah, we need these other people, because obviously what we're doing with drugs is not enough. Right. And it's not adequate. And there's not enough diet studies. Right. So. There's only like one low FODMAP diet study that was done in um, Southeast Asia. It was a very small study and they found that wheat um, specifically was the one of the culprits that may be um, important, but mm-hmm. they didn't really have specific symptom benefits um, that they could show, but also they didn't use the Rome criteria. So it's kind of like, it's good if we use the Rome criteria, but they right. do real easy diet studies that you know, that really sort this question out because in 2021, we still can't not know what diet to recommend for these patients. There's only one small study that says small frequent meals, but then it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Consisting of what? Yeah. Right. No, that makes sense. Small size, like small size meals, but, um, 
but that's not really, you know, when we're, when we've done a million prokinetic studies, none of which have been effective, right? It's kind of like, like how much money have we already spent, right? In the healthcare system and right. how can we do a much easier study, but, but also with the eosinophilia, you know, what could the low FAMAP diet help the patients who have increased mast cells and eosinophils and have functional dyspeptic symptoms, maybe, right. um, so I think those were kind of some things that we highlighted in the paper to say these are future studies that should be done. Yeah, I think that I thought that was interesting. And that was what I was going to ask you in terms, you know, it's clear that a lot more research is needed, not just in, you know, what's the differentiating issues here, but also in treatment and management. And, you know, so your paper with Dr. Talley listed some of these things on the horizon that should be investigated further. And I think, um, I think it was really interesting that you made, you highlighted some of those things, looking at mast cell activation, looking at the eosinophils, looking at some of the diet stuff. Um, I mean, what, what do you think, how long do you think it will be before patients can expect to see a little bit better guide, guidance on diet therapy or even, I mean, I haven't necessarily seen all that many studies showing the efficacy of behavioral health in functional dyspepsia either. So um, I think it's all mostly been in IBS or IBD, yeah. but we know that these can benefit from behavioral health treatments. You, you know, you said anxiety is a predominant factor in these conditions. So it would be nice to see some, some studies showing efficacy in, in functional dyspepsia as well. And gastroparesis, uh, you know, true gastroparesis can be very debilitating and very, very psychologically impactful. So obviously there would be a, a place for it as there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the neuromodulators can help both groups. I feel like psychological therapies, certainly I've seen it in just anecdotally can definitely yeah. help both groups. Yeah. I think um, I think we need more funding. Like I was at ACG, right? I did the I did the lecture on complementary medicine techniques and IBS, right. but I kind of feel like that should that lecture should have been given by a psychologist. And then we need more presence of GI psychologists. That I know we don't have many of them, but we need presence of them talking about the studies, how these methods are performed, how they can help our patient population. And then, yeah, they need to be funded. I think like we need to target funding for these kinds of holistic studies also, but, you know, right. I think the industry sponsored grants are great too, because that's a, sure, that's another value, but these, I think, um, kind of need some help because we can't say for the next 20 years that we still don't have a diet study for yeah. functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis. Right. So hopefully, yeah. you know, hopefully that will change, you know, in the future and, um, and, and then it improves our patients' lives because, um, you know, even things that's, is, easy as sweeteners. Like, are they eating artificial sweeteners? I have a dietitian now in clinic and it's mm -hmm. so valuable because she finds all these things that people are eating, that they're scared to tell me, you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like, um, you know, the physical abuse stuff that they don't sure. share sometimes sure. with their male physicians, maybe, you know, depending mm -hmm. on who approaches them and how they approach them. So right. I think it's the same thing. I don't, I think we're uncomfortable asking about diet because we don't know what to tell them to eat. Right. right. So because we're uncomfortable, they can tell we're uncomfortable. We just say, don't eat vegetables don't eat salads, you know, and yeah. then they just go away saying, you just want me to eat crap. Like is that yeah. what I'm going to eat. <laughs> That's right. what I want me to live. But dietitians can actually help them sort the foods they like. Right. It's a, it's also a very cultural thing. Like I, I would say when I was seeing patients in Miami, telling them with gastroparesis, what not to eat, stay away from beans, stay away from this. People would mm. look at me like I have like hooves and they're right. just, I'm That's not going to do that. Food. Sure. Yeah. So you can't make, 
you do have to make culturally aware recommendations to people mm. depending on what they like to eat. And I think dietitians have the ability to do that much, Absolutely. much better than we do. But um, so I think, you know, I mean, I also just hate the food that they give them with scintigraphy. I mean, that whole meal is disgusting. I mean, I don't know if anybody's yeah. eating it. Um, I almost vomited that whole meal. It's just, it doesn't have any spices on it. It's like disgusting eggs. They put like this jam on it, the butter, the two pieces of toast. If I'm not nauseous, I get nauseous. So I can't imagine a nauseated patient, like how they're going to get through sure. that sandwich. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, good so it's point. just not a logistic, easy, logistically easy, easy thing to do either. But um, Dr. Camilleri is going to shoot me now. <laughs> well we know that if you if you have a patient <laughs> who you need to do the test on it needs to be done well and it can be a valuable test but otherwise we don't need to overuse the testing um, so dr Moshri, what do you tell your patients um let's say you diagnose a patient with functional dyspepsia what do you tell them are the key things they need to be doing to self-manage their symptoms Besides what you're doing together in your treatment regimen, what kind of self-management are you telling them to do? So I think exercise, right? We've proven that yoga and exercise and just distraction, mindfulness therapy mm -hmm. um, helps IBS, right? So right. I usually will tell them to get the Calm app um, that's on, you know, uh, it just helps yep. them sleep. A lot of times they have trouble sleeping, right? So get those types of things. I, I encourage them to go to a GI psychologist to see if cognitive behavioral therapy, acupuncture actually helps functional dyspepsia in some studies, although they're not like rigorous sham studies, but still um, better than IBS. Like an IBS acupuncture doesn't really help, but maybe in functional dyspepsia, it, it could be a resource. And then, um, and then just kind of keeping a good food diary where they can figure out if there's culprits within even the low FODMAP diet that is either onions or cabbage or something specific mm. that has current, like specifically caused them problems over time that right. they should kind of um, avoid those, right? So that's all in their hands. And then there's all these psychology type of apps that are coming along that patients yes. will hopefully, you know, have access to. And I think, why not? It should help a gastropedic. It should help. It's not going to hurt a functional dyspeptic or any of these patient populations with chronic abdominal pain, um, yeah. no matter what, right? So. So it's worth a try, but you kind of have to be a believer that it helps you. Like if you go in thinking it's not going to help, then nothing's going to help, right? You have to yeah. be open. You have to be open to those kinds of therapies for it to help. And then a lot of herbs, right? So there's a lot of different studies on different herbs, whether it's Iberogast or FDGuard with the caraway oil mm -hmm. and others that have been done, even in IBS. And I encourage my patient, there's curcumin, um, mm -hmm. you know, ginger, right? Why not? Um, yeah, I just, I tell them do it, but do the actual, not do it in tablet form, do the actual product. So ginger, we can all find in a grocery store, right? Make your right. ginger tea, make your cumin tea, right? There's, um, there's benefit, I think in those things too. Okay. That's great. That's great. Any last tips or takeaways for providers? Yeah. So I guess for the providers, you know, I mean, the, I know we all do gastric scintigraphy. Um, we are recommending that it may not necessarily be done. I think take a good history, make sure I use the GCSI scale like crazy. Every time a patient comes to me, that symptom score, I try to divulge that to my fellows and my peers right. that it just makes it much more easy to follow patients over time. Um, right. So if, and then if you see there's certain symptoms, like if I see a lot of bloating, early satiety, postprandial pain, they're functional dyspeptic. 
Um, Then I treat them with bispirone and other tricyclics and others. If I find that it's vomiting and that's the predominant symptom, okay, maybe that's the patient I would work up and they're losing weight. Decreased appetite, sure. And then if I find that they're um, kind of all over the place, severe symptoms everywhere, then I try to put them on a neuromodulator, try the PPI. Most of the time they're on a PPI, right? Mm -hmm. But the neuromodulators, I think we all need better training. And I would seek out training sessions that help with that. Doug Josman is going to do a session on November 11. Um, and that's, I'm going to go to that, right? I've been giving neuromodulators for 20 years now, but I always pick up something that um, he teaches that I could use in my patients, whether it's imipramine and what the difference between that is and, you know, um, amitriptyline and the side effect profiles, et cetera. So I think right. we should seek out those things because our patients do have pain um, and we're not treating their pain adequately. We're just saying, we don't do opiates, goodbye. Um, And I don't think that's adequate. I think it's augmentation therapy. So be open to doing that anti-emetic, prokinetic and neuromodulator. Why not? Because that's oftentimes what's going to help all of their symptoms. Um, So I think it's not, we can't just treat one symptom in isolation. It's kind of like a, once we ask, right, many symptoms are there. Um, So I think we just have to open ourselves to hearing it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's good advice. Thank you. So don't forget, Dr. Moshri is going to be hosting our live tutorial next Tuesday, November 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And she'll be answering your questions and giving some of this information um, and more. So please bring your questions if you're a provider and you're struggling with how to manage a patient with functional dyspepsia or gastroparesis, you have questions, you're a patient, you have questions, this is your chance to get some answers. So bring those uh, next Tuesday, the 9th at 7 p.m. on Tuesday night IBS on Twitter. So we're looking forward to that. Dr. Moshiri, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you all next time. Take good care, everyone. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.